Welcome to the Victory Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. At Victory, we value love in action through growing, connecting, serving, and giving. We work to show God's love and share His truth as we love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ together. Here's this week's sermon by Pastor Terry Green. You know, we were sharing praises of God's mercy and uh, we were, in my brain, I was thinking folks were going to share verses about it, but nobody <laughs> shared a verse, but we did share the joy of God's mercy. And so I, I think right now, before we get into the message, I want to just have a quiet time. You just talk with God and you thank Him for His mercy, and in a, a short time, I will pray. And, and then we'll get into God's word together. But let's take a moment in our heart, just between you and God, you praise God for his awesome mercy. there's nine different fruits in that picture that you have there. But the truth is, 
it's not nine fruits of the Spirit, it's one fruit of the Spirit. And the characteristics go in nine different ways. It's not like farming, you say, oh man, your alfalfa crop looks pretty good, but you know, your corn and wheat's a little thin, and man, your peppers, they're dying on the vine. You know? It's not like that. It's not, you are looking at the whole picture. And here, let, maybe this image will help. So uh, we'll, go ahead, uh, we'll bring up uh, a piece of fruit and then we'll put all of these characteristics in that fruit. Love, say it, say it with me, okay? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's all of these nine characteristics that's all inside one fruit. And so we're going to look at these characteristics over the next several weeks, and we're starting today with love and what we can learn about how the Holy Spirit's uh, producing love in our hearts and lives. Uh, but the first thing that we need to realize here is that healthy trees produce healthy fruit naturally. You don't walk through your backyard. How many of you have a fruit tree in your backyard? A bunch of you do. You don't walk out in the backyard and hear the tree going, because <laughs> it's working hard to produce some fruit. <laughs> if you did, you'd run screaming, right? Uh, yeah, it's, it's not like, uh, what was that place at Disneyland where they, the tiki room at Disneyland, the trees would all start singing. And, and, uh, uh, but they... Na healthy trees naturally produce healthy fruit. Now let's look at this spiritually and see the spirit will naturally produce every part of this fruit when you are truly trusting and following Jesus Christ. Amen. Now I wish as soon as I got saved, the spirit said, you're now a Christian, Terry, bam, you got all of this stuff. It doesn't work that way. It takes a long time sometimes, but there's a process, and you're growing and maturing. And if you ever had a bicycle tire that had a spoke that was too short, you had a little thump that you went around, um, I, that's the way some of our lives are. We're maturing in most areas, but what the Holy Spirit's doing is he's working in all of these areas to produce maturity and growth and we need to walk with and partner with him as we trust and follow Jesus Christ. So we're going to start out this morning looking at the fruit of the Spirit in the aspect of love. And it will be in Galatians chapter 5. And then we're going to immediately turn and read a couple verses from John 13. But in Galatians chapter 5, we have the foundation here for this series what Paul described as the fruit of the Spirit. Now, in this chapter, he writes about a couple of things. He writes about the works of the flesh, and then he writes about 17 things that are signs of the works of the flesh. And then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit. So here's the difference. There's the, the works of the flesh, and then there's the fruit of the Spirit. And so uh, the works of the flesh are going to be the wrong kind of stuff, and the fruit of the Spirit is going to be the very right kind of stuff. And so he wants us to follow the Spirit. In fact, he describes it as a warfare going on. The Spirit's struggling against the flesh, and the flesh is struggling against the Spirit. And we need to partner with the Holy Spirit 
to allow him to mature us in these areas. So we're going to look in verse 22. In contrast to the works of the flesh, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, <coughs> kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. All of these things are the good and godly things the Holy Spirit wants to produce in your life. Now, the, the scriptures tell us that we can respond to the Holy Spirit, even believers can respond to the Holy Spirit um, inappropriately. We can resist what the Spirit's doing. Uh, we can quench what the Spirit's doing uh, by our choices, by our actions. And so the natural production of these of this fruit can be hindered by our thoughts and by our attitudes. But the fruit of the Spirit begins with what? Love. Starts with love. Now, there's a worldly kind of love that is encouraged in many churches. And I say it's worldly and not sexual love, but there's a worldly kind of love that many churches actually endorse. And that is to completely overlook every sin or failure. They, they love people without any call to repentance or any challenge to growth and maturity. And, and in those churches, there's some verses they particularly like. Um, one is Proverbs 10, 18. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Uh, Proverbs 17, 9. He who covers a transgression seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates very friends. 1 Peter 4, 8. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Now, this is part of the aspect of love. Part of the aspect of love is that uh, we show mercy because we receive mercy. We show grace because we receive grace. We show kindness because God has shown his kindness to us. And so that's part of love. But that's not the whole picture. And what these churches are teaching is you, all you have to do is just love, love, love. And love becomes almost this sappy, sentimental emotionalism. Now, I mean... I love Jim Ricosi, but he doesn't want me to go up and hug him and stroke his back. And, you know, that would kind of freak him out. That freak me out too. If I myself out. Uh, you know, that, that's not the kind of love that we have to show to one another. God wants us to have a full love. And see, there's another side of love, another side of the relationships that we have with people that the scriptures clearly teach. Look at uh, at these two verses, Second uh, Timothy 4, 1 and 2. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead and is appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. Now I emphasize the word rebuke here uh, because this is something that doesn't happen in some churches. They just want you to feel good about your, who you are and feel good about God's love. And yet the challenge in God's word 
is that in the preaching of the word, sometimes we're going to be rebuking. Amen. And not just in the preaching. Uh, 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20, he says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder or a pastor, except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sitting rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. So if somebody in a leadership position has openly sinned, they need to be openly rebuked. That's the biblical pattern. And yet those churches, all they do is focus on this emotional love. They're not following God's word. They're showing love and grace when what Jesus Christ wants in his church is to show love and grace and a call to repentance. And they're not doing the call to repentance. And so uh, they're leaving out part of it. Now we have a spiritual obligation to show love. Amen. We do. We also have a spiritual obligation to speak truth Amen. and to encourage, but also to admonish, even to rebuke when needed. And so God gave us a very clear example to show us what love should look like. Just look. <laughs> Here's the truth, okay? We're going to look at God's word. The model for showing love is Jesus. The model for love is Jesus. So take your Bibles and turn, please, to uh, John 13. And uh, we're going to be in this passage a couple of times, uh, so don't, don't close it. Leave it available and open, even though we're going to mention some other verses. Uh, we're going to come back to this. Okay, and uh, in John 13, uh, we're going to read a couple verses. In fact, I, let's go ahead and put it up, and we'll read it together on the screen, okay? Because some of us have different translations, and that's okay. And you'll notice that I have emphasized part of this to show that Jesus is our model of love. Let's read it together. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Love one another. Care for one another. Uh, engage with one another. But the model, the standard, the objective it, uh, standard, the, the model of it is, as I have loved you. We're supposed to love the way Jesus loved. Obviously, when you think of Jesus' love, one of the first things that come to your mind is the cross. He loved us enough to die on the cross so that the penalty for our sins could be paid in full. And we rejoice in that love. But there's other ways in which he loved us. Now, uh, when, in, when Paul was writing to the church in Ephesus, he had another verse, husbands, Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. As I've said before, Christ didn't just give himself for the church on the cross. He did it every day. He gave himself. He suffered. He endured a lot of harassment and abuse all through his life and ministry. So how did Jesus love? We're supposed to love as Jesus loved. Amen. That's the model. That's the standard. That's what you compare your life to. Now, uh, I was talking with my grandpa one day, and my grandpa said to me, he said, Terry, 
I was a better dad than my dad was. And your dad was a better dad than I was. And you're a better dad than your dad was. Maybe your boys will get it right. <laughs> you know, we're, we're making progress. But see, you're not supposed to compare yourself to your dad or your mom or your brother or your sister. You're not supposed to compare yourself to any person living on earth or any person who was on earth and isn't anymore except for one, Jesus Christ. You compare yourself to Jesus and that's the measure of how well you're doing as the Spirit is trying to produce love in your heart and life. The first thing Jesus did is he always responded to their needs. As he showed love to people, he responded to their needs all the time. He did it all through his life in ministry. In John 2, when Mary asked for help at the wedding feast, what did Jesus do? He stepped in and helped, turned the water into wine. He blessed and enriched everybody there. Why? Because his mommy asked? No, because it was the right thing to do. And he had a desire to meet needs. And maybe also because his mommy asked. <laughs> in Matthew 2, 22 and in Mark 4, they woke Jesus from a sound sleep on the ship because they were in a fierce storm and they feared for their very lives and Jesus was asleep. And they woke him up and, and he walked out and he did two things. He rebuked the winds and then he calmed the waves and everything was calm and peaceful. Why? Because he met the need. When Peter started to sink in the water in Matthew 14 and he cried out, Lord, save me, Verse 31 of that chapter says, Immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and pulled him up. And so please listen carefully, okay? Sometimes you're going to pray for deliverance. It's not going to happen. Sometimes you're going to desire this particular blessing from God, and he's not going to provide it. I have prayed for friends to be healed. <laughs> I prayed for myself to be healed of some chronic things, and, and God just says no. In the same way he said no to Paul, when Paul prayed for deliverance, and he said, my strength Amen. is enough, my grace is enough, and your weakness will prove a, a measure of strength of God working in your life. And so uh, sometimes God's not going to answer those prayers. I, I watched my mom over an eight and a half year period slowly fade away because she had Parkinson's disease. I watched my dad the last couple of years of his life as he developed dementia and, and it was so frustrating for him and so difficult for him. There was a point in time when my mom could look at her firstborn child, her daughter, and say, who are you? And, and that exact same thing happened to her when her dad had dementia. And he could look at my mom and say, who are you? And, and those are heartbreaking, heartaching. And we want God to heal everybody right now in this life. And God doesn't always. Well, God is smarter than you are. He sees into the future further than you do. And you can only see a little bit of today, and he sees the end from Amen. the beginning. And so he may not immediately, and perhaps not ever, take care of your problems, 
but he still loves and cares for you. He's still working in your heart and life. When the problem was urgent and it was God's will to correct that problem, Jesus did it swiftly. And one of the ways we show love like Jesus is by helping people. In fact, in Acts 10, when Peter was sharing with Cornelius in his household, and he said, here's how he described Jesus. He was a man empowered by the Holy Spirit who went about doing good. And Paul challenged us to overcome evil with good. So we can, like Jesus, respond to the needs of others as the Holy Spirit grows God's love in us. Secondly, he spent a lot of time with them, but he didn't let those relationships dominate his life. Some people like to dominate other people. Uh, they want to be the only person that's close to you. In fact, there's a really weird thing in our culture where some men do not want their wives to have any close friend. They want to be the guy that meets all the needs. And, you know, I'm thrilled that my wife has some close friends and she can share with them. Then I don't have to hear all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> It nurtures her, it helps her, and it ministers to her in a way that, that I can't. And so there's a blessing there for both of us because she has that friendship. And there's a blessing for her that I have friendships other than just her. And, and so don't feel like you have to be the only one and one and all. But, but we often find Jesus in the middle of busyness. In the middle of ministry and thousands of people coming to him, he goes off by himself. We see that pattern in scripture. He made sure his priority was his relationship with the Father Amen. and not his relationship with his friends on earth. The focus was God. And so in John 11, we find Jesus intentionally delaying before going to uh, the term when Lazarus is dying and they let him know that he's really sick and Jesus waits for days before he goes. And when he finally shows up, everybody thinks it's too late. Lazarus is already dead. It wasn't too late. He was right on time. He was going to do a miracle and raise Lazarus from the dead. And so he waited on purpose. His friends did not set his agenda. His, he focused entirely on the will of God. In fact, in John 6.38, Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He never strayed from his priorities. He loved and cared for people, but he did not let those relationships dominate his life. You may have somebody who's trying to do that to you. And actually, there's a book written by Henry Cloud and John Townsend about boundaries. Jesus didn't need that book, but, but you might, to establish some boundaries in some of your relationships. I've given that book to a couple people because they were really struggling because one person wanted to dominate them. All right, here's the third thing Jesus did. He spoke the truth. Sometimes, even when the truth was awkward, Jesus was the master at creating awkward moments. 
When they could not heal the man's son in Mark chapter 9, uh, they asked, why could we not cast the demon out? And uh, you know what they were wanting to hear was some technique they would learn. And Jesus said, this kind came out not but by prayer and fasting. See, he didn't give them a technique. He told them what you need is for spiritual discipline. So he wanted them, uh, sorry, he warned them that he would be arrested and put to death. And that's not what they wanted to hear, but it's what they needed to hear to prepare for what God was going to bring into their lives. When the rich man wanted to get to heaven, what did Jesus tell him? Sell everything you've got and give it away and then follow me. See, Jesus knew that his love for things, last week we talked about do not love the world, his love for the stuff of this world was going to keep him away from God. And Jesus said, get rid of the stuff, focus on God, and you'll be saved and can go to heaven. And so he, he was not willing to give up his stuff. And it says he went away sorrowful. But the real sadness is, he went away from Jesus. And Jesus didn't stop him. He didn't, he didn't try and dumb down the message. He spoke the truth. With the woman at the well, he confronted her messy life. Divorced five times and now living with a man who was not her husband. And Jesus had that conversation with her. And it was remarkable for a lot of reasons. He was a Jew talking to a Samaritan. He was a man talking to a woman in their culture. Men did not talk to women who weren't relatives, especially not a man alone with a woman alone. Not only that, he was a rabbi and he was talking with a woman. And so Jesus broke all kinds of cultural barriers and, and he spoke truth and it was awkward for her to hear. In fact, she tried to change the conversation because it was awkward. But eventually, she trusted and followed Christ. There was a woman caught in adultery. And Jesus' final words to her, go and sin no more. Don't do it again. Amen. He told his disciples to be aware of the Pharisees and the scribes. And then he called the scribes and Pharisees uh, vipers to their faces. He said, you're acting like vipers. Now, you might not know what vipers are. They're poisonous snakes. Not poisonous. But venomous. venomous. Venomous snakes. They're only poisonous if you eat them and kill you. They're venomous if they bite you and you die. So uh, they, they were venomous snakes that could put them to death. And, and Jesus, that's what Jesus called those people. Because they were hurting people spiritually. He pointed out the fraud of their supposed faith and their lack of truly following God. He spoke courageously. He spoke with authority. He spoke the truth. After being arrested and beaten, he spoke the truth, even knowing it would cost him his life. So here's another way he spoke the truth. He didn't try to build up their self-esteem. Sometimes, when it was deserved, he rebuked them harshly. Sometimes he did that. And so when Jesus, well, are you still in John 13? Uh, when, when Jesus was washing their feet, uh, a funny thing happened with Peter. 
shocking. I know Peter opened his mouth. Wow. How shocking is that, right? So in uh, in uh, John 13, it says in verse 6, Jesus is going around washing the feet of the disciples. And then he came to Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Now, in verse 8, Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Most translations have an exclamation point there. This was emphatic. Peter said, You will never wash my feet. He knew that he was so far below Jesus, he did not want Jesus trying to wash his feet. He thought that was inappropriate. But Jesus, with sweetness and light, says to him, if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. He said to Peter, listen, if I'm not washing your feet, there's the door behind you. You know the way you came in? You can take it right out of here. You have no part with me if I'm not doing this. And, and then, you know, Jesus rebuked him harshly. And then in Matthew uh, 630, 826, 16, 8, Luke 12:28, he said the same five words to them. Oh, you a little faith. He repeated it over and over because they weren't believing, they weren't trusting, they weren't stepping up by faith. And then when Jesus told them of his impending death, Peter rebuked Jesus. Peter kind of took Jesus aside and grabbed him by the shoulders and he said, Lord, this will not happen to you. And Jesus then looked at the other disciples and looked at Peter and he said this, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now, there's only one other time when Jesus used that phrase, get thee behind me, Satan. Who was he talking to on that occasion? Yeah. Talking to Satan himself. After the temptation of Christ and Satan tempted him and Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. And now he uses the same phrase, the same emphasis to talk to Peter. Why? Because Peter was not focusing on spiritual things. And by not following God, Peter was following Satan. And so Jesus rebuked him strongly. Now, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 10. And there's a couple of verses that I want you to see there. Mark chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 13. Mark chapter 10 and verse 13. Then they brought little children to him, to Jesus, that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. There's a cute kid song about let the little children come, and it's got a light melody, and it's kind of, let the little children come, let the little children come, this kind of light thing. Okay, but, but I want you to look at this. At, at the beginning of verse 14, how was Jesus responding to them? He was greatly displeased. So what does greatly displeased look like? A picture, nostrils flaring, eyes glaring, stern voice. 
and, and let the little children come to me is emphatic. So Jesus isn't saying, let the little children come. He's saying, let the little children come. Let the children come to me. Turn to the disciples, probably in a rebuking voice. Maybe those of you who are in the military, here's the commander who's correcting the troops. Let the little children come. Not this light little happy voice. He was upset. He was greatly displeased because they were turning kids away instead of calling kids unto Christ. He didn't try to build up their self-esteem. Sometimes he rebuked them sharply when it was deserved. And there are times in your life when you're loving people, sometimes you have to rebuke them. A loving police officer still has to cuff and stuff the bad guys. You put the handcuffs on them, you slip them into the back seat of the patrol car because that's the right thing to do in those circumstances based on their actions. Now there's one other thing that Jesus did, a couple others, but one significant. He celebrated their victories with them. And in Luke 10, Jesus appointed more than 70 disciples to go out in two-man teams to go to the cities uh, where Jesus was going to be ministering. And, and he sent them out to go ahead of him and to represent him, to be kind of his advanced team, to go there and do that. And so as, as Jesus was uh, commissioning them and sending them out, uh, they went out and they all ministered. So there's 35 teams. Jesus went through multiple cities. I don't know if each team just went to one city and he planned this next tour through 35 cities or maybe each team went through two cities and he was planning to go through 70. But he, he sent out 35 two-man teams to go uh, present things and prepare the way and, and talk about people. And then when they came back, they gave a report how exciting it was that God was working in their lives. And Jesus was happy for them. And here's what it says in verse 21 of Luke 10, that in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. Now, he's also celebrating a victory with all of us in heaven. Uh, when he was establishing the Lord's Supper, and he said to, to drink the fruit of the vine as a representation of his body, of his blood shed for us, he then said, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus was planning to celebrate the victory even before his crucifixion. And so Paul wrote spiritual instruction for how believers should respond to each other. And in Romans 12, Paul said, rejoice with those who rejoice. He, he learned that from Jesus. And Jesus also celebrated their spiritual understanding. When Mary anointed his feet, uh, described in scripture in anticipation of his death, he, he praised her. And he said, wherever the gospel's preached, what this woman has done will be shared. And you know, his disciples, they were fighting over who would be greater in the kingdom, right? And here's Mary worshiping the Lord, anticipating his death, anointing him in anticipation of that. She was preparing for it and humbly serving while Peter was rebuking Jesus. Sometimes the women got it before the guys did. Does that ever happen in your house? <laughs> 
You know, Jesus celebrated their victories. So when you when you kind of wrap up the different things Jesus did, is he shared life with them, eating and serving, and sometimes even grieving with them. He, he shared life with them. They had meals together. They took journeys together. Uh, and it wasn't like, hey, let's pile in the car and drive to Phoenix. It would be a walk, a full day, sometimes two-day walk to get from here to Phoenix. And in John eleven thirty five, the shortest verse in the English language Bible, Jesus wept. Mm -hmm. Mark six thirty nine, he commanded them to sit down on the green grass, and then he took the the loaves of bread and the fish, and he broke them up, and then he gave them to the disciples. The disciples then took them out and gave them to the people. You know, Jesus had the capacity to actually sit there and chuck pieces of bread right into people's mouths. As the Son of God, he could have made it float out to them. He could have just suddenly had their stomachs be full. But he partnered with his disciples and gave them the opportunity to minister. He did that again up in Galilee. Uh, with a, a group of 4,000 men uh, with seven loaves and a few fish. He did it again there. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes about the body of Christ, believers, how should we, we should get along with one another. He said there should be no schism in the body. How many of you have ever had to deal with cancer in one form or another? So, I have quite a few in this room have. And uh, one of the things you, you know about cancer, cancer is part of your body attacking another part of your body. Part of your body is fighting it. And so what they have to do is cut out the cancer. And sometimes radiation and chemo to kill the cancer because that in your body is trying to kill other parts of your body. And so they have to kill it before it kills you. And so that's what Paul said, there should be no schism in the body. The body of Christ should be as organically connected as your own body. And when your body's not connected together, it's awkward, right? It's painful. It's hurtful. So then he says, the members should have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Then he ends with, you are the body of Christ and members individually. We are the body of Christ. Amen. And what the Holy Spirit wants to do in you is create a pattern of love, part of the fruit of the Spirit, of love that is like Jesus' love. So the world can look and see a little bit of Jesus in you. Amen. Now, we don't show love by blowing kisses. We show love by serving and helping and even sometimes by rebuking. We share the joys and the sorrow of life. The fruit of the Spirit begins with love. So, again, trees don't have to work hard to produce fruit. A healthy tree produces healthy fruit. Unless it's a desert tree, then it produces really healthy stickers. <laughs> but a healthy fruit tree will produce healthy fruit automatically, naturally. And so you don't have to manufacture love. 
You don't have to go home today and say, oh God, I don't love people enough. Please help me love, make me love. You don't have to do that. The only thing you have to do is get closer to Jesus. And as you get closer to Jesus, the Holy Spirit's going to make his fruit come out in your life. You will naturally begin to love and care for other people. Um, and it, I know it's true. I've experienced it in my own life. As I've grown in my relationship with Christ, when I was in the Marine Corps, my nickname was Mean Green. My dad said, son, when you're too mean for the Marine Corps, you got a serious problem, right? <laughs> but that was my nickname in the Marine Corps. And, and what changed? Well, for one thing, I married Kathy, and that's been a huge blessing in my life. Another is I tried to follow Christ. And the closer I got to Christ, the more the Holy Spirit changed my life. And now, even if somebody really annoys me, I don't have a desire to go up and punch him in the face like I did when I was a 19-year-old Marine. Aren't you glad? I, I, God has changed, and, and I can show love to people. Why? Because God changes hearts a lot. We pursue Christ, and the Holy Spirit does His work. And I could take the time to describe for you the circumstance when I first became aware of how much the Holy Spirit had changed me. I'm not going to do that this morning. But, but do know this. The power of the Holy Spirit is working in your heart and mind. And you can love like Jesus. Because that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do in you and through you. Thank you for listening to the Victory Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to know more about Victory, please visit our website at victoryarizona.org. You can also connect with us on our Facebook page or by emailing victory at victoryarizona.org. We'd love to help you accept and follow Jesus Christ.